The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. And I'm here with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good morning, Ricky. Good morning, Vic. How are you, man? Uh, I am well. Got lots to uh, talk about. Yeah, yeah, the Oscars, the Oscars, the 75th, I'm sorry, the 95th <laughs> annual um, Academy Awards, which were on Sunday. I just have to say this, you know, uh, for years and years and years, there, there's been this diversity issue with the Academy. And a few years back, there was the, it was in 2016, the Oscars are, are you know, Oscars to white, uh, et cetera, and all of that. And the Academy has tried to make some changes by bringing or adding a lot more newer, younger members and people of color. But, you know, I was looking at this massive uh, group photo from their, you know, their Oscar luncheon. Oscar luncheon is this um, luncheon that's done weeks prior to the Oscars where all the nominees come and then they take this massive group photo. It's kind of like your high school photo. And I was looking at that. And yes, in the performance categories, uh, you know, actor, actress, leading, the supporting, which is like a tiny, tiny fraction of the nominees, yes, there's diversity. But when you look at all the other categories, all the other professions uh, in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, primarily we're talking about people behind the camera. It was astounding how there's such a lack of diversity and it's not shocking because it's not just an academy problem it's really an industry problem for the most part people who work behind a camera in film and television are straight uh, white men and and this has been the case and that's why when you look at this big group photo in 2023 the diversity the academy talks about doesn't really transfer it's just not there I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, we have it in the, you know, best actor and actress categories. No, but where's, how about the other categories? The editors, the cinematographers, the composers and, you know, sound and all of this stuff. So it's like an uphill battle. Yeah. The narrative around the Oscars the last few years, um, it's been eye-opening. And also at the same time, it's not a surprise. You mentioned behind the scenes and behind the camera, it's hard to pinpoint. I think it's a trickier angle than than what's in front of the camera because when you're talking about those positions, we just don't really have the information. We can't pinpoint it the way we can pinpoint a performance, the way we can say, well, this actress or actor was, was clearly better than this person nominated referring to a uh, a minority actor who may have had a better performance than uh, one right. of the so nominees. You're saying, you're saying that it's a possibility that the reason 90 plus percent of these people in the photo are white, that it's all about uh, they're, they're just better suited and they're better candidates and they're just better at what they do. 
Probably not. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's just a trickier angle. But to... but look at it. I understand what you're saying, but look at it in other industries, right? Uh, whether it's in our government uh, institutions, agencies, organizations, and such. When when we talk about diversity, when we look at a board of directors of a of a company, uh, we just go by what we're seeing at first because. Of course, you have to have uh, merit and you have to be qualified. But that that application that I'm talking about, which is you look at this picture and you go, wow, this does not represent Hollywood. This does not represent you know, Los Angeles and this industry. Uh, it's the same as any other organization you would look at. It would be looking at like, let's say, state senators of California or assembly members in California or council members. I think the industry can do better to to reach out and to um, hire more people of color and women uh, and LGBTQ, etc. Because if you if you just said, well, we don't we don't know what the qualifications of these people are. Maybe they're best at what they do, but that could be said about anything. Could be said about you know, let's say there was a, and I'm using this as an example. Let's say there was a, uh, you went to Huntington Park or a neighborhood that's. Uh, almost, you know, it has a massive Hispanic population, but then all the council members were white, right? I mean, you would question that and you go, really? So you're telling me that the 20 white people that live in this neighborhood were the ones that qualified to be on the council. It's just questionable that the council is not represented. It does not reflect the community. Totally. And my point is, is that this is naturally uh, just a, a bigger uphill battle than the in front of the camera pressure that the the academy felt and somewhat addressed. Ideally, um, you would hope, we all hope that regardless what industry we're talking about or that exists, that meritocracy is at the forefront. Right. Something that is <laughs> Hollywood is devoid of. Um, <laughs> it's one of the it's one of the things I love about love about radio because um, in radio it doesn't matter what you look like how you present yourself and with radio it's it's really about what what the hell you have to say right to a degree matter. to a degree I also you know I, I think listeners also find out uh, about their uh, the hosts and and such it's less of that but uh, it still plays a part. But let's go talk. Let's talk about a good win. You know, uh, some good news, uh, in my opinion. Uh, okay. The nation of Georgia, not the state, but the nation, uh, former Soviet nation of Georgia, which is bordered with uh, Russia and Armenia, they were going to uh, pass this law. It was called the Foreign Agents Law, which the government wanted to make it a requirement that if any organization received more than 20% of its funding from a, a foreign source, whatever that would be, that they had to register. And this was a way of keeping taps on uh, media organizations and NGOs and et cetera. And so the people of Georgia took to the streets and demonstrated uh, for two days um, really aggressively, and they won and it was pulled. So. You know, it, it works. Demonstrations and activism work. And uh, and this was a perfect example uh, of a nation that was on the brink of, well, uh, there's a lot of authoritarian elements in its government, but this was going to go to the next level and they stopped it. 
That is very cool. Yeah. And um, our government <laughs> and others are are trying to stop that, at least that's they claim, from China from infiltrating, you know, with TikTok. And I know you've got a lot to say about this. Yeah. So TikTok has been a very uh, divisive application in terms of social media. China has become, in terms of the narrative swirling around in Washington and and uh, TikTok, obviously a China-based company, people in Washington have been on the side of banning the the app, the popular app, particularly popular amongst uh, younger people. This started out as a kind of a, a Republican deal, but lately more Democrats are entering the conversation to ban the app. And you know, I'm just curious, Vic. Like, social media has has changed life. So I'm curious where you stand regarding, I don't know if interference is the right word, but the government making these type of rules. Well, if there's legitimate and uh, proven documented uh, evidence that China is using TikTok uh, in any shape or form to, to uh, you know, cause any kind of a harm to the U.S., our interests and all of that, then I'm all for it. Uh, other than that, it's uh, government overreach, it's censorship, you know, and I, um, we just haven't seen enough data and enough uh, uh, evidence, if you will, that that's what's happening. So at this point, you know, I, I'd like, I'd like to see um, some solid examples of how this is done, if it's been done, and why we are, we are sort of having this conversation and why it's different than other social media um, apps, uh, aside from the fact that it's sort of, it originated in China. Yeah, so there has been a bill presented already about banning the the TikTok app off of federal devices. Uh, right. Government employees who maybe for some reason have the application on their phone. This is a quote from um, Representative Michael McCall um, from Texas, someone who's on board uh, with with the banning of the app, quote, TikTok is a modern day Trojan horse of the Chinese Communist Party <laughs> used to surveil and exploit Americans' personal information. And uh, he ended it with, it's a spy balloon in your phone. So this idea of uh, sharing information and or capturing information, it's been a big thing, I'd say, the last 10 years, um, fine print and I really think you made a good point in that it kind of is just speculation at this point. And until there's some concrete evidence that China is, I don't know, weaponizing the app against us or putting us at a disadvantage, I don't think the government has a an argument. Well, I just say I, I challenge our government to also address the fact that we Americans are being spied on too. I mean, have we forgotten... Uh, WikiLeaks? <laughs> Have you forgotten uh, everything that uh, we read that came from uh, Snowden? And uh, it's a little hypocritical. I'm not saying it's okay for China to do it, but if we're going to address privacy, um, we should address privacy comprehensively for um, all of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so Vic, you have an interview I do. I have a special interview. Tell us a little bit about Katya. Yeah, so Katya Davitian uh, Karagosian is uh, is a she's a pharmacist by trade, but uh, she wrote 
um, this very heartfelt, personal book. Uh, it's called uh, Forbidden Homeland, Story of a Diaspora. It's really about her being a descendant of Armenian genocide survivors uh, whose you know, ancestors um, escaped to Lebanon, uh, where she was born. She moved to the U.S. Uh, as a young girl and really achieved the American dream. Um, and so she wrote this very personal book that's it's a bestseller. It's doing really well about just her experience. And uh, as you know, it's sort of a very, uh, it's very apropos now with what Armenians are going through, as some people are calling the continuation uh, of the Armenian genocide with Azerbaijan and Turkey sort of joining up to, uh, you know, against the Armenians. I mean, since uh, December 12th, 120,000 Armenians have been basically held hostage by Azerbaijan, cut off from food, medicine, necessities, gas, electricity, despite uh, International Court of Justice's ruling that they have to open uh, the blockade of Artsakh. The only road going from Artsakh to Armenia, Azerbaijan won't do it. And uh, because of Azerbaijan's oil and gas and uh, other factors, um, the world just sort of doesn't do anything meaningful. So this book is very apropos, unfortunately, about, you know, with what is happening now to the Armenians. I actually went to the book launch event. It was a big event. It was attended by elected officials and such. So yeah, yeah I'll be talking to Katya uh, in a little bit. Um, that's coming up. But before we do that, let's uh, take a quick break. The Blunt Post with Vic. KPFK needs everyone on board with their member donation to make sure we have the resources to report and update you with the information you need. KPFK can't stop now, but it's impossible to go on without our listeners' donations. Activate your KPFK membership now at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. The Blunt Post with Vic. Katya Tavitian Karakosian is a pharmacist and an author. Her new best-selling book, Forbidden Homeland, Story of a Diasporan, is about her experience as a descendant of Armenian genocide survivors growing up in Lebanon, her move to the U.S., and the connection to Azerbaijan's invasion of Artsakh in 2020. Good morning, Katya. Thank you for uh, being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today? Very good, Vic. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so I want to talk to you about your book, which is Forbidden Homeland, which has to do, you know, with your Armenian roots and uh, your family and, and a lot of other things. But before we do that, I'm going to have you talk to us about your, just tell us about your background. Well, first of all, Vic, I want to thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I want to also congratulate you on the tremendous accolades that you're getting for your documentary, Motherland, Thank you. Uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, as far as my background, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, I was about uh, six or seven when, this, uh, when the civil war started. So my memory of Beirut, unfortunately, evolves around wartime. And we were growing up and there was no electricity. Obviously, there was no power. We experienced all the, I guess, issues that come with being in, in war. I was uh, I was growing up with politics in my ears because you know there was no electricity there was no TV so people just gathered around and talked about politics 
who assassinated who, what was happening, what kind of weaponry were being used. So I guess my interest into politics, you might want to say, comes from that. Uh, I I also love history. I've always loved history. So uh, in my my dad had a hard time deciding if we want if he wanted to leave Lebanon, because um, you know he had poured his uh, blood and sweat into uh, his businesses. Uh, he he just didn't imagine himself outside of Le- Lebanon. But in 1983, when uh, the bombing happened at the American uh, embassy. Uh, or I should say the Marine barricades and 200 Marines died. Uh, I think that was uh, the point where he decided we've had enough of this. Uh, we're leaving this country. So in 1984, we left Lebanon and we left when the war was at its worst. The The airport was closed, imagine. So we had to go by bus uh, to Syria and, and just uh, leave from there. When we left Lebanon, uh, I, I always thought that we would never survive the war, to be honest. So when we left uh, 1984, it was like a new chapter, new beginning. And uh, we are still very grateful for this country to take us in and uh, for have, for having given us a second chance. So uh, 1984, you know, I'm, I'm a new immigrant uh, in California. You know, I guess teenagers or kids are resilient in that sense. Uh, I completely put all my experiences in Lebanon behind me, and I was busy getting uh, adapting into you know the, this new country that we came came to, going to school, trying to make friends. So started going to college in 1988. Uh, and 1988, if you remember, that's when the Soviet Union was was falling apart. Armenia was trying to secede from it, and the first Gharapa War. Uh, in fact, in 1988, I, I remember the Sumgait pogroms were happening in Azerbaijan against the Armenians. So uh, with that by, back, by the back, way, sorry to cut you off. It's the 30th anniversary of it. I, I know 30th or 35th. Uh, I can't remember. When, but when uh, yeah. 30, 35th, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Yeah. So in, in this backdrop, with this backdrop, uh, I was trying to make friends and I made the acquaintance of two Turkish Armenian uh, students. So one day, and I don't know how this happened, it still amazes me. Uh, just to insert myself into their conversation, I just made a joke. I said, "Well, I'm from there too. I'm from Turkey too, essentially." And uh, they turned around and they said, "How is that so?" I said, "Well, my dad's side of the family is from Malatya." And that was literally the first time I was saying that name, Malatya. I had heard it in the background uh, while growing up, uh, but I had never actually said that name. So for a second there, I thought maybe I, ha- I had the name wrong. But one of the girls turns around and she says, wait a minute, I'm from Malatya. Long story short, I ended up finding uh, descendants of my grandmother's relatives here in wow. California. Yeah. Incredible. And uh, yeah, so these relatives, and, and that's when I realized that my, my grandmother was the only one in her family who had uh, escaped to Lebanon from the genocide. Uh, all, all of her family had stayed behind in Turkey. So we made arrangements to meet uh, our relatives, I mean, my family and uh, the, you know, we, we met. And uh, the, the only way I can describe the meeting is... Uh, by saying that it was a life-changing event. So the things I found out having to do with my family's very compelling 
genocide survival so story. I found out what had happened to my grandparents and how they had escaped. Uh, but also what had happened to the Armenians who were left behind in Turkey. So that part was unknown to us. And that's when I realized how uh, our communities were disconnected with, from each other. You know, every community in the countries that uh, took us in was busy surviving within that country. So yeah. the Lebanese Armenians didn't know what was happening to the ones who were in Turkey, uh, with the ones who were in Soviet Armenia. So um, let me let me stop yeah, you there for a second. Okay, go ahead. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with best-selling author Katya Tavitian Karagosian. I want to give our listeners some context. So what Katya is talking about is uh, after the Armenian genocide of 1915, which uh, was carried out by the Ottoman Turks, which is now Turkey, there were about 2 million Armenians living in their own ancestral homeland uh, in Anatolia, which is about Eastern Turkey, uh, who were uh, either massacred or, or walked to their uh, death marches. And some survived and escaped to neighboring nations, such as Katya's family uh, who survived and uh, ended up in Lebanon. Others le ended up in Syria. Some went to Greece, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, France, etc. And so, and some uh, were able to hide, and some were able to hide, and a small, small number of them, and actually remain in uh, in uh, Turkey, who eventually, uh, even today, they're called hidden Armenians because they're afraid to reveal their uh, Armenian identity. So when Katya is saying that she met she met a girl that was a Turkish Armenian, meaning that her ancestors, great great grandparents, uh, survived the genocide uh, and somehow uh, were able to stay in uh, Turkey, and uh, she ended up being a distant relative uh, of hers. And um, when we were talking about the Sumgai massacres, which happened about uh, thirty five years ago. Uh, it, part of the pogroms that the Azerbaijan, the state of Azerbaijan, uh, orchestrated against the Armenians in Sumgait, uh, Baku, and Kirarbabad, which ended up massacring about 30,000 Armenians between 1988 and 1990. So, Katya, I just wanted to sort of give that context. So, go right yes, ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to describe my journey, the journey of my book. Uh, it started with me discovering uh, relatives here and then uh, discovering the story of my grandparents, uh, how they escaped from Turkey, all their experiences, but and also what my relatives, my newfound relatives, had gone through in Turkey in the aftermath of, gen of the genocide. You know, we always say that the genocide uh, was perpetrated by Ottoman Turkey, but if you heard what they had gone through, and the different ways different uh, Turkish leaderships uh, had used, especially they had used the legal system to either Turkify, uh, force the remaining Armenians to Turkify, or they gave them such a hard time that they basically pushed them to leave. So the genocide, from what I found out, had just evolved into different shapes and forms, but it had continued. 
And some, um, and some say that, and, and there's valid point to this, that what's happening now, considering the 2020 uh, genocidal attack of Azerbaijan, aided by Turkey and orchestrated with Turkey's help, is a continuation, of the continuation of the Armenian genocide and, and pan-Turkic ambitions, uh, which was, in 1915, one of the reasons uh, for the genocide. And you're absolutely right. I... Uh, you know, when I when I when I've read President Biden's Armenian genocide statement in the last two years, you know, their communications team is very careful to say mm -hmm. the autumn. Well, actually, the first year they said the Ottoman Turks. Last year, they didn't even say Turks. They said the Ottomans. The, yeah. the, the truth of the matter is that when the Ottoman Empire fell and the three Pashas, who were the masterminds of the Armenian genocide, uh, escaped and Ataturk took over, he continued the genocide in just a different way. Armenian mm -hmm. genocide didn't just happen in 1915. Some will say it started in 1896 with the Adana massacres, mm -hmm. and it actually sort of ended in 1923, <laughs> so under Ataturk. So yes, it was the Turkish genocide by the Turks, and that's that. Yeah. What I realized is that... Uh... I realized how little I knew about the Armenian genocide and which was surprising because I had uh, gone to Armenian uh, schools in Lebanon. And yet what I knew was very, very insufficient from what I discovered. Uh, for example, my my relative, my grandmother's last name, maiden last name is Arpagian. So in 1934, uh, they had what was called the surname law that forced the remaining Armenians within the eastern provinces of Turkey to either take out the IAN suffix or take on a Turkish name. And uh, it, it was then that my, my grandmother's relatives changed their Armenian last name to a Turkish one. So, so, ma so many different things came out uh, from, from this. And uh, so I realized how disconnected we were as, as a people and how disconnected and fractured our story was. So, you know, I'm, I'm a... I guess my background is scientific. I'm a pharmacist, so I like to analyze things from the beginning. Uh, how how did it start? Why did it happen? So I started uh, investigating the crime that had taken away so much from me, from my family. You know, when I met my my relatives, uh, the genocide became a personal thing to me because uh, I found out that uh, my grandparents were, were very rich merchants. They had a mansion, you name it, all these things that should have, basically, I should have inherited that were taken away from me with no reparations, nothing. And worst of all, with 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 denial, uh, denial of what, what had happened. And as you know, denial is the tenth and last stage of genocide. As long as there is denial, the genocide is an active crime because because denial takes effort and money to and continue. In and it, in the and it is as hurtful, yeah. In Turkey's case, they don't just deny it. They have a, a, a state-sponsored campaign exactly. of denial and campaign of distortion of history and revisionist history. They spend so much resources on, on rewriting history. Uh, as I said, it's an active uh, effort, uh, which makes the Armenian genocide a, an active uh, crime against humanity. So, you know, I started researching. I wanted to know why it happened, how it happened, 
uh, how they got impunity for it, how they continue to have impunity for it. So as I was researching, a lot of facts came out that I was totally surprised about. As I was you know, researching and, and looking at the dates and the order of things, uh, the genocide kept on linking itself to the Gharapagh conflict because uh, we, we give the dates 1915 to 1923 to uh, the Armenian genocide. Uh, but just like you said, it has it started much sooner than that with the Hamidian massacres of 1894. And uh, so during the same period of time, in 1919, the defense minister, Anwar Pasha, went to Ganja in today's Azerbaijan, and to together with their Tatar brothers, back then the Azeris were known, were, were known as Tatars. So together with their Tatar bro brothers, they massacred 30,000 Armenians in Baku in 1919. Right. And in 1920, they massacred 20,000 Armenians in Shushi. Uh, in 1919, they had also massacred 12,000 Armenians in, in Nakhichevan. So this was happening within within the same time. And, uh, and if uh, you recall, uh, when the 2020 war uh, ended and they, were, they had like a victory parade, uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, praised the memory of Enver Pasha, who had come all the way to Baku with his uh, army of Islam. So right. that's the incident that he's praising. Yeah. So the Armenian genocide, we I think we, we have to update our, I guess, our definition of the Armenian genocide. There was a book by uh, Ben Morris, uh, the two, uh, is, I think, Jewish uh, professors, they wrote a book with the title of the 30-year genocide and describing the Armenian genocide. So just like they say, I agree also that the Armenian genocide started when the Ottoman Empire started crumbling and its uh, remote territories started breaking away. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami. And you're listening to my interview with best-selling author Katya Tavitian Karagosian. You mentioned something uh, important about what Erdogan did after the invasion of Artsakh in 2020. You know, uh, Erdogan, who I call a butcher, who has ma massacred millions of people, uh, Syrians, Yazdis, Kurdish, uh, Syrians, Armenians, he is still being called an ally by NATO, by uh, many people in our own uh, government, and so many people are co-signing his BS and placating to him, or placating him. This man that, if it wasn't for the fact that Turkey is, a, uh, is in NATO, and a few other reasons, the fact that, and this is also a man that, <laughs> You know, Turkey houses ISIS. ISIS, that's their epicenter. And Turkey invented and created the Grey Wolves, uh, which are jihadist terrorist organization that have cells all over the world. This is Turkey. And yet uh, we have um, Secretary Blinken calling them uh, a good, uh, reliable ally, which they're nothing but reliable. Even in 2003, when we were trying to enter Iraq, uh, they wouldn't let the U.S. use um, to cross the Turkish border into Iraq. 
So continue. I mean, I just wanted to sort of yeah, yeah. really emphasize that that this is this is the man we placate. Yeah, but as you know, as I go over it in my book, a uh, hundred years ago, the picture was completely different, Vic. So a hundred years ago, the Europeans wanted the Ottoman Empire to fall. They constantly uh, befriended the Armenians. Uh, they promised them constitutional rights, that they would be there for them. So the picture was completely different 100 years ago. Uh, so when the Ottoman Empire was was falling and its remote areas, uh, territories were breaking away, uh, you have to realize that de demographically, the majority of the Turks were living on historic Armenian lands and also Greek lands. So uh, Eastern Turkey was basically where the Western Armenian provinces were. Right. So, so in, in, in 1894, uh, when they lost all these territories, uh, they started worrying that Armenia would also break away and become independent. So that's when the Armenian question arose. They, they called it the Armenian question. Basically, it pertains to the independence of Armenia from the Ottoman Empire. Right. So for them, because their main land was upon the historic lands of Armenia, their, their, the majority of their population was there, the independence of Armenia became a red line in the sand. It, it became an existential threat. So, and uh, th that's why it called for any means possible, they, they uh, was okay to stop that from happening. Including genocide. I, I want to, for for the for the sake of time, uh, and for the for the sake of people buying your book to learn more, so don't yeah. give it all away. Uh, it's called Forbidden Homeland, and it's by Katya Tavitian uh, Karagosian. Uh, you can buy it uh, on Amazon and uh, many other places. Know, Just Google yeah. it, uh, Forbidden Homeland. You know, there are two there are two points I want to make. Uh, in years past, I've heard a couple of people, non-Armenians, say, oh, come on, Armenians, get over it. The genocide happened over 100 years ago. Why are you pushing for the recognition? Well, guess what? Three years ago was proven to us how imperative it is to recognize genocides, not just the Armenian genocide, but uh, the Holocaust, uh, uh, Chilean, Cambodian, uh, Darfur, Rwanda, uh, right now as we speak. There's a genocide happening in Ethiopia. There's one in Yemen. Yazdis in Turkey and Syria are still being killed by Erdogan. So if we don't recognize them and if we don't hold uh, the perpetrators accountable, they'll do it again. And they did it again because Turkey and Azerbaijan uh, invaded the independent Republic of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, in 2020, massacred 5,000 Armenians, indigenous Armenians, in their own ancestral homeland of millennia with impunity so far. So that is the point of this. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with best-selling author Katya Tavitian Karagosian. Now, I was going to ask you about the reason you wrote the book. Uh, of course, you have you have a you know incredible story. Your success, you're an immigrant success story. You came here, you know, under these these totally unusual circumstances, traumatized, and you put yourself. You know, you went to school and you became a pharmacist, 
and such. But why write this book? Was it about catharsis? Or was it a more of a sort of research for yourself to really like document the genocide and your family's experience through it? Well, Vic, I was um, trying to get to the fact that I had to look into the events that happened 100 years ago to understand what was happening today. So 100 years ago, the Turks negotiated with the Russians to uh, form a brand new country called Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a very is an artificially formed country in the sense that it never existed as a as a country before 1918. It was Actually, just before 1991. 1918 they were just it was it was assigned as a territory and then it folded into the USSR in two, two years later. Yes. So you know it it uh, if you look at old maps uh, the ancient Armenian kingdom is is covers the, the majority of today's Azerbaijan. Right. So those were lands that the ancient Armenian kingdom had lost to the uh, Iranian or, or Persian empire. So, so that area was not defined. When the Russian empire fell, Turkey and Azerbaijan took advantage of it and massacred as many Armenians as they could and took as many uh, Armenian lands as they could. And they contested Nakhichevan, Zangezur, and Artsakh. Why did they do that? Because that corridor would be would link Turkey to Azerbaijan, and that's a uh, that was a philosophical or political ambition, uh, a Turkic ambition, that wanted to look eastbound and form a Turkic Union, Pan-Turkic Union. So why am I saying all this? Is because today what's happening is the continuation of that plan that was uh, not uh, fulfilled back then. So basically, they're continuing from where they had left off 100 years ago. Now they are coming for Zangezur. So uh, back then, uh, the Armenians were able to uh, defend themselves within Zangezur, which is the southern province of, uh, of Armenia. But Nakhichevan and Artsakh were given to Azerbaijan by Stalin. When that first happened, America and then the Western nations refused to uh, recognize it, recognize Azerbaijan and recognize the, the borders that were drawn by Stalin. However, now things have changed 360 degrees. The Western powers, because of Azerbaijan's, I guess, strategic partnerships with them or oil or what, what, what have you, are recognizing the illegal borders drawn by Stalin 100 years ago, okay? So Artsakh was part of Armenia, transferred to Azerbaijan, and mind you, it was 96% Armenian. Imagine that. It was put into Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan and Turkey pushed for this pan-Turkic ambition, and they got as much of Armenia as they could yeah. back then. Now Actually, they're back just, to take just... over, yeah. So, so basically, uh, when I was doing all this research, I came across the different ways that America has been involved in the Armenian destiny. Uh, a lot of truths came out that I was so shocked about. Uh, I didn't know that America was this involved in, in Armenian history. Today's America doesn't remember any of it. You know, we had a president, Woodrow Wilson, who recognized Eastern Turkey as Western Armenia. And, and awarded it to the Armenians in the Serb Treaty. So uh, the reason why I wrote my book, uh, to answer your question, the reason why I wrote my book 
is because I think Amer this is an American-Armenian story, okay? I think the American people have to question some of the policies of this nation that are being funded by their, by their tax dollars. Uh, most of the foreign policy that happens uh, in government, uh, the public has no say in. And, uh, you know, America is, uh, is a medley of, of uh, diasporas, right? It, it contains so many diasporas. It is very important for us to know each other's uh, backgrounds and stories, uh, each other's homeland issues, so that we can hold our leaders accountable for the foreign policies that they're leading. Uh, that's what's unique about America. Uh, however, if you think about it, uh, like uh, if America, let's say today, decided to do, a, you know, uh, hold a certain foreign policy against whatever, Cambodia, you name it, I wouldn't know in what context that's being done. So as Americans, we need to know some of this history. Such, uh, as, such as the fact that um, right now, as we speak, even though President Biden recognized the Armenian genocide in 2021, after Congress had already recognized it, so it was a ceremonial act, a week later, he turned around and lifted Section 907 of the Freedom Act. Exactly. And gave Azerbaijan $100 million of U.S. taxpayer money for so-called border control and military aid, which is illegal. And, and I say this in all confidence because I've interviewed members of Congress who have said it was illegal to do so because the United States is not does not give money to any nation who's going to turn around and use it against its neighbor or another nation to slaughter them. And that's what happened. They did it and they gave it to Azerbaijan. And this is President Biden, who I voted for. I'm 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 admitting it, uh, but I'm disappointed yeah. by the administration. They did it again last year. They've made excuses yeah. for it. Um, it's absurd. Uh, we know the political reasons. It's not a justification. It's not. Uh, it's just not acceptable. And yes, uh, his his uh, April twenty fourth uh, recognition was was historic. But if you looked at the choice of wording and the verbiage, you quickly re you know realized that there's still it's still upholding the impunity of Turkey. Absolutely. It says the Ottoman era genocide. It says we we do not cast blame. What does that mean? Uh, whatever whatever we're doing in Ukraine, uh, you know, we are helping the Ukrainians against tyranny. We are somehow when when I say we, I'm talking about the Americans. We are doing the opposite in the Caucasus. We are helping a tyrannical dictator, you know, dictator against the two democracies there. Armenia and Artsakh, which and is President Biden and Sec yeah. Secretary Blinken are not afraid to call a spade a spade when it comes to Putin. However, when it yeah. comes to terrorist Aliyev and terrorist Erdogan, they get tongue-tied. Uh, in fact, is, which is amazing. Their I mean, their toxic both sidedism, their reckless both sidedism and false balance, has has emboldened them and has continued to uh, continue to terrorize Armenians because right now, since December 12th, Azerbaijan has uh, blocked the only road connecting Artsakh to Armenia and to the rest of the world, hence cutting off Artsakh, 120,000 Armenians from food, medicine, essentials, 
uh, the, cut off their gas, electricity, internet, and so on. Literally, if this isn't genocide and ethnic cleansing, then I don't know what is. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with best-selling author Katya Tavitian Karagosian. The aggression in 2020 was genocidal. Absolutely. Because it was, it was so uh, uneven. You know, it, it was outrageously uneven. You, you had NATO's second largest army take over the military command of Azerbaijan, which was uh, armed to the teeth with the latest technology and in, in, in warfare and using illegal weapons over what in an enclave of 150,000 ethnic Armenians who voted democratically to want to live in freedom in their homeland and and the rest of the world did or uh, said nothing and did nothing so that's why I wanted to publish my book I had no intention of publishing it I, I considered it my family story but all these uh, uh, political facts that I layered within my story, uh, I think have to be known to the American people. If you asked a regular American citizen uh, and and you uh, told them what happened during the war, the way they treated the Armenian POWs, uh, it, it totally transports you back to the medieval times, the way they treated them, okay? Uh, would that American person wanna fund this kind of a, you know, endeavor, most likely not. But that's why we have to push back uh, on all the uh, fact revisionism, all the lies that are being reinforced by Western media, uh, unfortunately. You know, when when you have the media uh, describe the 2020 aggression as a war, that's, that's laughable. But they're using terminology that is helping cover up uh, what's being done there, which is well, it wasn't is a war. It, it was a genocidal, yeah. It was it a genocidal showed... assault and ethnic cleansing. Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, objective was to either kill or drive out all the Armenians from the Republic of Artsakh, their homeland that they've lived on for thousands of years. Literally, we yeah. have it on documents. I had to, I had to research all of this for my film. We have it on paper. We as as far back as 9th century BCE, there's mention of Artsakh and Armenians. So, uh, uh, you know, these journalists, yeah. some of whom are beneficiaries of caviar journalism, which Correct. is uh, being wine and dined and bribed and go on press trips to Azerbaijan. And in cases of New York Times, BBC, CNN. Uh, Azerbaijan has uh, cleverly created, uh, quote unquote, strategic partnerships with them. Yeah. So they're just they're yeah. just buying its paid uh, placement. It's, it's, it's media. media placement. Yeah. It's it's uh, paid media. It's 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 disgusting that the Western freedom loving uh, uh, the media of freedom loving nations. Uh, yeah. Katya, we're going to be running out of time. I, yes, yes. You, you kind of uh, answered this question, but uh, as far as I was going to ask you, you know, who's your audience? Um, but I think I think yeah. you told us, but uh, go ahead. So my, my audience, you know, my book at work and stuff, it's becoming like a point of discussion to people. People are opening up about their backgrounds and and you'll be amazed uh, at the similarities that we have in our backgrounds. You know, we all immigrated here for a number of reasons and there's a lot of similarities. So uh, I think it gives an opportunity for us to share our diversities 
So it's definitely directed to the American uh, people, also to the youth, because uh, we live in a world where where truth doesn't matter anymore. Unfortunately, we're at a very bad place in history. It feels like might does right. And people don't have the right to, uh, I mean, don't have the time to investigate and look into the, the genesis of issues. So it's, it's very important to know the facts and uh, take everything that's being said on the media with a grain of salt. So, yeah, my audience is the American people, which is a very generous people. They work so hard and uh, send all their hard-earned dollars all over the world, but they have to know what they're funding. And the Ar- Armenian youth also, they have to know their history, uh, because if they're the future of our nation and they don't know our history, we're, we're basically lost. History is one of the pillars of a nation. You take it away, you take away its identity, and it falls apart very rapidly. And it really so is. I invite everyone to uh, purchase my book. It's very informative. It's very timely. Uh, it's very, it's a current, uh, you know, story. Uh, and, and it's told in a very uh, relatable, conversational manner. And it's getting great reviews. And I'm very delighted. Yes, I read some of them. Congrats on that. Uh, anything you so else you'd like to add before we go? What's next for you? Well, I'm going to have more book signings, uh, pub, you know, maybe uh, more book tours type of uh, events. And uh, I just got a five-star review from the Literary Titan, which is uh, w- w- which I'm so happy about. I saw that. Fantastic. So, yeah, I've always loved uh, writing, and this was the ultimate story to write about. Even though I haven't studied creative writing, I've always loved writing, and uh, it's uh, it's been a very satis- satisfying journey. Once again, tell us where people can purchase our Forbidden Homeland. So Forbidden Homeland, Story of a Diasporan uh, by Katya Tavitian Karagosian. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble online. We might soon soon get it to be sold uh, in, the, in the stores, Barnes & Nobles, uh, the bookstores, uh, also local bookstores, uh, and Ingram Spark. Fantastic. Uh, Katya, thank you so much. Good luck with the book, although it doesn't seem like you need it. And, well, uh, thank you. I want to thank you, Vic, for this opportunity to highlight my, my book. Uh, I truly appreciate it. And uh, just like your movie, I think uh, it's a very timely piece of literature uh, and very educational. Absolutely. Thank you, Katya. I hope to talk to you again soon. Same. Thank you, Vic. Well, that was author Katya Tabitian Karagosian. Thank you, Katya, for um, being on the show today, uh, your eye-popping book. Good luck with it, although you don't need it. It's already doing really great. If you want to get in touch with Katya, you can follow her on Instagram. Uh, Her handle is at KTK underscore author. So that's at KTK underscore author. Thank you again, Katya, and hope to uh, chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.